0: Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. When a young man with an intellectual disability died from inadequate care in a psychiatric unit in the UK... His family, with the help of activist and London School of Economics fellow Dr George Julian, launched an awareness campaign that soon caught the eyes of Chris Hatton, Professor of Public Health and Disability at Lancaster University. Now they're both working together to reduce the number of preventable deaths in people with an intellectual disability everywhere. Dr. George Julian and Chris Hatton both visited the University of Melbourne recently to speak at a Melbourne Disability Institute seminar titled "Dying for Change: Improving the Lives of People with Intellectual Disabilities." Our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath, caught up with them after the event for a chat.
1: Paint the landscape for us. Where are we with disability, intellectual disability, and well-being in society?
2: I think we're a place, certainly in the UK, where we know much more than we did. I think the poor health of people with intellectual disability was very much a hidden problem um, in, the, in the UK, certainly. So I think we're starting to know more, um, but we're not at the point, I think, of really getting society and health services to appreciate the rank and fairness and injustice of this.
1: How prevalent is intellectual disability
2: in the UK, we don't really know the numbers of people because lots of people aren't known to services um, with that label. And some people may may not want that label. Um, but we're talking probably around 2% of the population. So around a million people in England.
1: As with
3: most conditions, there's a spectrum of people.
2: Absolutely. So it's hugely diverse range
3: of people. George? I'd agree with Chris in terms of I think we're more aware in the UK. Um, we've had a number of um, relatively high profile deaths of people with a what we would call a learning disability or their, the profile of their premature death has been raised by their families, campaigners and um, activists. So I think we're aware that it's an unjust issue. I don't know that we've mainstreamed that issue for most of society yet. In terms of Australia, I think people who work in the sector are aware of the issue. I don't think society knows and I don't think society is appalled and I think it should be. Chris, you started
1: doing some research in this area, getting evidence towards intellectual disability, well-being, health, mortality, with the view of turning it into public policy. Let's start with the research.
2: Yes, the research. Obviously, there's a huge group of people that's um, an international group of people now work, work, working on these issues. I think it's fairly well established across a number of countries that people die much younger um, in ways that they really don't need to if they were looked after properly.
1: Why is that?
2: whole host of reasons. So going back from health services, so people are discriminated against by professions, um, the way that kind of routine health health services work really don't work well for people with intellectual disabilities in the main. But then we need to go through to much broader issues of society in terms of, I guess, people with intellectual disabilities are more likely to be in the kind of circumstances that are bad for any of our health. Um, Poor education, unemployment, poverty, poor housing, loneliness, all those issues are much more likely.
1: Tell us how you went about the research and what it revealed.
2: I think in terms of the research we're pretty, uh, we're kind of scavengers really. We kind of look for whatever information we can find and how we can use it. Um, So we haven't been able to build up a, a, a complete picture. So some of it is looking at uh, health service systems and what uh, information they have. Some of it is looking from large scale surveys and what we can learn from those. What we haven't done much of and what we need much more of is really understanding people's experiences of those systems as they go through them.
1: George, something I know you've been working on, and Chris, you're a part of this as well, is the Justice
3: for LB campaign. For those who have not encountered it, explain it to us. Okay, so LB stands for Laughing Boy, which was the online pseudonym given to a young man called Connor Sparrowhawk. Connor's mum, Sarah Ryan, wrote a blog about their family life called My Daft Life that's available if anybody wishes to look at it. And Sarah's blog documented their family life um, as it was, you know, just this family of fun and um, travel adventures and whatnot. And part of that was life with LB, who had autism and epilepsy. Um, Sarah's blog documented their family life and as LB, um, as Connor got older he, he came to be leaving school and he, some of the kind of anxiety that came with that not really knowing what the future held made meant him, made him quite stressed and anxious and his behaviour deteriorated a bit and his family asked for support from healthcare um, asked what they could help them with. Uh, the answer or the the end result was that Connor was admitted to what we call an assessment and treatment unit, which is a psychiatric unit where people go, in theory, to be assessed, to have their um, experiences, their health, their behaviours looked at and a plan pulled together to how they have a good life. And then in theory, they leave and they go back into society and have that life. Um, Connor was in this assessment treatment unit. It was run by um, an organisation called Southern Health NHS Foundation Trust. So it's part of our National Health Service. And he was in there for 107 days um, before he drowned in the bath. Um, and Connor's death was entirely preventable. His parents had been engaged in his care. They'd tried to kind of raise their concerns with the healthcare staff. And since Connor died over the last five years, um, the campaign has kind of developed to... Uh, Initially, to raise awareness of what happened and to raise funds, because families have to pay for their own legal fees when everybody else is paid for by the state. Um, And then, as time went on, um, Connor's um, mum and family wrote um, something called Connor's manifesto that kind of spout out what they would like uh, justice for LB to look like. And part of that was to um, ensure that other deaths of people with an intellectual disability were examined and you know to check what was going on and that was to raise awareness and to kind of demand justice so lots has happened over five years um there has been a lot of, uh, people came together over, to mark the 107 days that he'd been in the unit the following year. People adopted a day and they raised money or they raised awareness or they had, um, they did various different things, um, sponsored things. There was, um, music, there were parties, there were academic lectures. So there was lots of different people contributed to the campaign. Um, since then, there's been, um, a review of all the deaths in that healthcare trust. Um, which they requested happened, and that found that only 1% of deaths of people with an intellectual disability received any sort of internal scrutiny. And 0.3% of deaths of people over the age of 65 who use mental health or learning disability services, which comes back to this inevitability that some people will just die early. So if you're 65 or over, you know, forget it. Um, Other things that have happened in the campaign, there's been lots of fun stuff as well. Um, We've walked part of the Camino in Spain with a red bus, light buses, and there's a cardboard cutout bus that has um, travelled the Camino in Spain twice now. Um, And there's been lots of work to um, kind of engage with people with an intellectual disability and figure out what they would like to improve their lives. Part of that was we drafted a private members bill. We crowdsourced that um, uh, to try and change the law. Um, I guess there's been... Lots and lots that's gone on, and, and we also live tweeted Connor's inquest. So, for the whole two weeks when the jury were present, we tweeted what happened in court to raise awareness of the real detail of um, his life, the end of his life, and his death. Um, and as a result of some of what's happened with Connor, um, there have been various policy changes, various people have spoken in Parliament about things that will improve or they hope will improve um, but also other families have come forward that, and the media have been brilliant. Journalists have allowed us a platform to share or, or get provided a platform to share people's experiences and now more and more people are kind of speaking up rather than just accepting this poor care.
1: Chris how did you get involved in the Justice for LB campaign?
2: Through social media really I guess I was just um, following what was going on more and more um, and I just felt a compulsion to try and chip in I guess in any way that that might be useful I don't know if it was useful or not. um but we chipped in it is all all sorts of odd things like we were trying to understand what was happening in the NHS Trust, so we were wading through uh papers of board meetings trying to understand I guess the context the history how some you know some of the the, the background to to why um to why Connor's death had, had happened I think one of the really important things for me is that in all sorts of ways, it just reveals a landscape of systematic institutional discrimination um, across inquests, across health services, wherever you look, really. So that gives quite a lot to do. But then there's plenty of us working on it.
3: Connor's mum, Sarah Ryan, has written a book called Justice for Laughing Boy that talks a lot about um, Connor, his life, who he was, and also touches on the campaign and what we've done since. So if people are interested, it's well worth a read. Avoidable deaths is an extraordinary thing to actually even
1: say in Western society, at least. Are avoidable deaths happening because these people are alone? I know more and more of the population is living by themselves. In fact, it surprised me the other day, the figures were, I think it was one in four. We all know people with intellectual disability and we all know people on the spectrum of that. Is the problem here living by yourself
2: no, I wouldn't say so. Um, people with intellectual disabilities are actually much more likely to get the opportunity to live by themselves than other people. So there are almost always other people around them, whether that's family, whether that's kind of people paid to to, to support people in, in various ways. So absolutely not living alone. Um, I guess the worry, the real worry, is how little all those people around them, um, who are often paid to support people actually don't take people's health seriously. So they may not notice that somebody is in pain or, um, or in distress, or they might put the kind of behavior that um, anyone would do when they're in pain. You know, a toothache makes me extremely cranky. Um, they might put that down to some kind of mental health issue or a challenging behavior and thereby uh, not investigate the physical health issue in, in the first place. And when those issues are potentially, um, explored, investigated, people are less likely to be treated in a way that is actually useful.
3: Yeah, one of the things I've done is live tweet inquests, coronial inquests, when someone with an intellectual disability has died and their family have managed to secure an inquest. And there was one in February this year of a young man called Richard Handley. Richard um, was well loved and well supported. He was a mischievous kind of personality and he had his family very involved in his life. He lived in care provision. He lived in what you would call a group home. And he had had problems with constipation since birth and he was just 33 when he died and he died as a result of unmanaged constipation. Now, to die from constipation in a developed country in this day and age still fills me with absolute horror. My brain cannot compute it. Um, But at his inquest, there was two weeks of evidence and what became clear is that Richard was failed at every level, by everybody involved in his care. So his family had raised concerns, but his carers had understood that he should see a doctor, but not the urgency of it. He had been seen by a psychiatrist two days before he died, but he hadn't seen the urgency of it. When when he reached the hospital, they didn't see the urgency of it. So I think there's something about, even if people are well-supported, even if people have lots of people in their lives, if you're not able to communicate, if, if people, medical health professionals, are not understanding your communication, if they put all of your and behaviours down to some sort of you know challenging behaviour then they're not going to treat the physical illness and with Richard his death was entirely preventable and it was just as a result of failings at every point of his care.
1: I'm going to ask what may seem like an awkward question but what I'm trying to do is explore the dimensions of why this is important to the public emotionally,
3: socially, politically, economically. Why is it important to the public? I guess my argument would be because people with intellectual disability enrich our society and we're poorer for not having them within it and we're poorer for not having them treated well within it. I think it's a shame on society that we can't do better. Economically, um, providing poor health care just makes your health worse, which costs more money. So, I mean, Chris can talk to the numbers; he's better at that than me. But I'm, I'm fairly sure there's a strong economic argument that we should provide people with good care. And I don't believe anybody goes into support work or healthcare work intending to do a bad job. I think most people want to do well by people, but we have got ourselves tied up in these systems or in these attitudes that prevent that happening. So, I think on every level we need to improve this. And I and I do think it's a matter for you and I and anyone on the street because this could happen to anybody who we know and love and it's not acceptable. Chris?
2: I think um, I would just add that people with intellectual disabilities are the
1: public. George, what drives you? I guess... You're um, passionate about this, I know, I can
3: feel it. I am. I, I do really care. I'm just angry. I mean, I don't think anyone ever thinks that's very healthy, to be driven by anger. But I I care. These are, these are people. I've met people with intellectual disabilities in Australia in the last week who you know, if we don't change these things, could be dying years earlier than they need to be. I've got friends with an intellectual disability who I want in my life. It's selfish. And I I can't get my head around the fact that this inequity exists and we just allow it to. So I guess I'm driven by a deep sense of inequity and that um, enrages me. But I'm also driven, I suppose, by the families who I've worked with or have spoken to who are just you know they're faced with such immense grief and yet they're all wanting to improve things for other people and i think that's very powerful
1: are there pivotal events if we reflect on the making of an activist in society that perhaps shaped your sense of getting this out there to society
3: i guess i should say i would never have labeled myself as an activist or a campaigner until the last year or so because other people kept doing it <laughs> i was like okay i'll take that title um i think I don't know what the events are. I guess. I guess for me, the deaths have been absolutely pivotal. Seeing the faces of these um, young people, and they're all mostly young people. You know, where were younger you? than me. Yeah. Where were you at the time when I when I heard about yes. these deaths? So. Um, When I heard about Connor's death, I was at home. I was reading his mum's blog, and I'm quite comfortable with death and dying, but I just didn't, I had no words. I just had no words. I'd followed Sarah's blog for a year or two. She had been blogging the whole time that Connor was in this assessment and treatment unit, and it was almost like watching a slow motion car crash. She had predicted that this might happen. She actually wrote a blog that said she was worried he would drown in the bath. So I think when it happened, there was just a sense of um, inevitability, and just I felt sick. I, you know, it makes me feel sick. And I've spoken to many families since, and uh, rarely do I lose that kind of horror when people share the details.
1: Were you working in healthcare at the time?
3: Uh, well, no, I was working. So I was working um, for a charity that. Um, gets research, knowledge and evidence into social care and healthcare practice. Um, So we worked with local authority social workers and we tried to kind of upskill them with evidence. So I was very much involved with knowledge transfer work. Um, However, um, my dad was terminally ill, so I'd already decided I was going to quit that job to spend time with him. So I kind of was in a space where I knew I wanted to make a difference and I knew that managing staff and budgets wasn't it. it. Um, And this, I guess... I never viewed it as such at the time, but I guess what happened to Connor and justice for l b was a very concrete example of knowledge transfer. I mean that sounds so crass, but it was it was enabling to use some of those skills to try and actually get a message to a wider audience um but again it was the whole campaign in connor 's memory was completely organic. there was no plan, there was no strategy, there was no budget, so you can look back in hindsight and describe it as such. But at the time, I think it was just we need to do something let 's try anything Chris, what motivates you what's pivotal for you?
2: In the midst of time, when I was a student, um, there was a course run by people who were working out of an old Victorian um, institution, and that was really instrumental in terms of firing a sense of injustice and how things could and should be different. Um, So that kind of started me, I guess, working in the area. Um, I became um, an academic because I couldn't do a proper job, to be honest. So it's kind of... (laughs) It's a kind of ex- you know expensive form of social care for people like me, uh, <laughs> but but over time I think I became um, a bit um, separated from people, and it was actually again the Justice for LB campaign that I think really um, radicalised me. I think really con- connected my kind of professional me to my actual human me, connected me much more with people with intellectual disabilities, with parents, with campaigners. So. I don't know if it's obvious from the outside, but it feels like for, from the inside that was a really um, radical turning point for me.
1: I'd really like to hear from you too about the types of misconceptions people have about this particular area of society.
3: I think one of the biggest challenges people assume people with a disability are ill. So they think that they're frail or vulnerable or ill and they assume that people will die early. Now, the consequence of an assumption, whether that's from society or medical health care, is that if people assume you'll die early, then the treatment they give you means that you will die early, um, potentially. So in the UK, we've had a number of cases where um, people with an intellectual disability have been given DNRs, so do not resuscitate orders, without any consultation necessarily. And I believe you've had similar cases here, actually. I can think of one or two where there's just an assumption that somebody... You know, like they have this phrase that it's a release or, you know, they're in a better place now if somebody dies early, if they've got a disability, which, to be honest, is due to people's ignorance about the quality of life that people with an intellectual disability can have. And most people with an intellectual disability, in fact, probably all that I've ever spoken to, are absolutely wanting to exist in society and wanting their lives. But if we assume that people are ill or frail or or don't really have a very good life, then we're going to make assumptions and treatment decisions based on that. Chris, misconceptions of society?
2: I think that people with intellectual disabilities aren't active agents in their own lives, that they cannot be the authors and write their own script of life. So I think society really um, doesn't encourage and doesn't allow people to express themselves and their full potential um, in terms of what, what, you know, what they want through, through their, their life.
1: The counter to that is what surprised you about this particular area of research in society? What pleasant surprises have you encountered?
2: For me, um, just meeting more and more people with intellectual disabilities, I'm absolutely convinced that leadership can and should come from this group. I know so many people in the UK who are equipped and ready and willing to really lead something major. And I think I would put people with intellectual disabilities really in charge.
3: No, I just absolutely agree with that. I'm, I'm not sure on the pleasant surprises from the research. I think one of the surprises that I... It's not a pleasant one, but that I find all the time is how willing researchers are to keep researching and keep finding the same evidence and the same uh, problems without necessarily feeling it's their role to change that. And I mean, I think it was interesting what Chris said earlier about the campaign reigniting or connecting the academic hymn and the human hymn. And I just would implore more researchers and academics to try and make that connection with their work. And obviously some people do that. But I think too often in, in research and academia, we can want to keep a distance from us and our topic. We want to f- appear rigorous. We want to appear to be a bit scientific. And that, I think, can be dangerous for people who we're researching if we're not researching with them and genuinely supporting them in what they need.
1: In some of the discussion we've had here today, it's brought up the element of unconscious bias towards intellectual disability but it's also perhaps behind that statement is a notion of people's understanding of quality of life how do you explain it
3: i guess i mean i guess for me i would i wouldn't see issues of quality of life for myself as any different to anyone else and i think that's the real issue we we if you have an intellectual disability, you're, you have the absolute same human rights as I do, or anybody who doesn't have an intellectual disability. So I think, you know, that's the issue, really. The issue is that we don't recognise people's human rights equally at present.
2: And I guess it, it's that there are kind of diverse routes to that. You know, one of the brilliant things about being in Melbourne for a while, uh, walking right around the streets is just how, how diverse things are and how much that enriches certainly melbourne and has uh enriched my meals certainly um but that 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 kind of you know everyone's different and that's good and that's a good thing we want more of that
1: has the mental health industry trailed behind the physical disability industry what have you seen change over the last decade
2: i think that's a really good question um in terms of uh, sort of fighting for people's rights, people fighting for their own rights, I think people with uh, intellectual disabilities have often been slightly left out of kind of broad, broader movements. And I think it's really important that people can connect to those broader movements and feel welcomed by them.
3: I guess I would also just just comment that I think people with an intellectual disability um may have poor physical health, they may have poor mental health, they may not have either. And I think the distinction between physical and mental health is a service system distinction. It's not, it's a societal, uh, you know, it's a box that we tick. Actually, people need to be considered in their entirety. And I think that's a real issue for people. I, I, you know, just because you have an intellectual disability does not mean that you will necessarily need any access to mental health care or physical health care. But when you do, you really need that care to be responsive to your needs.
1: What would you like us to think about next time we encounter intellectual disability? Or what do you really believe needs to be done? I'm putting you on a soapbox right now. (laughs) What do we need to rethink?
2: I think it would be great if people didn't have to think anything. If people just saw people like anybody else.
3: Yeah, I I guess I would just like that if if and when people encounter people with an intellectual disability, they just kind of find out their name and a bit about them rather than label them or kind of work in that way. I think... People people with intellectual disability will tell you what's important to them and what they would like your help with. It's not really for us to do.
1: Thank you for making us feel like we're part of something bigger and that we're all together in on this. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, George. Thank you.
3: Thank you.
0: Thanks to Chris Hatton, Professor of Public Health and Disability at the Centre for Disability Research, Lancaster University, UK, and Dr George Julian, Freelance Knowledge Transfer Consultant and Visiting Fellow at the London School of Economics. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdropping experts: stories of inspiration and insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on November 12, 2018. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production: Dr. Andy Horvath and Sylvie Van Wall. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this podcast, drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.